As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of 1 Peter. And um, again, let me just say, just on behalf of Redemption Church, that we are incredibly thankful to be here. Um, thankful to the bridge on Taunton. Thankful for Pastor Allen and the, the generosity and the kindness and the partnership in gospel ministry. And uh, really looking forward to seeing how God is going to continue to bless that in the years ahead as we uh, strive forward in the gospel uh, together. Um, this morning is a, a kind of a different morning um, for us. We're not going to be kind of going through one specific text as we often do in, in our church, in Redemption Church, kind of working through one passage systematically. It's going to be a little bit more thematic, and, um, and that's typically what we do on this Sunday every year. Um, years ago, when we started the church, uh, on kind of this New Year's Day, New Year's Eve kind of a message, kind of a season, we, we took this kind of approach of maybe resetting a little bit, of, of doing some evaluation and looking towards the future, kind of playing off of the New Year's resolution idea. And so we're going to kind of continue with that theme this morning as we look towards this next year. My hope and prayer is that you can just pause for a minute and evaluate this past year, spiritually speaking, and look forward into this next year and be asking God, and trusting God um, for great things in your life. We're going to be hopping around to a few different texts, so we'll, we'll be flipping our pages a little bit this morning. The first passage we're going to look at is in 1 Peter, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, I've framed these messages over the years around a famous theologian by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, um, in the years 1722 to 1723, he wrote 70 resolutions to help guide his life. He was only 19 years old when he wrote down these 70 resolutions. And here's the preface to his resolutions. Here's what he wrote as the, the preface. He says this, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And then he wrote these words, remember to read over these resolutions once a week. Here is a young man who is committed, like few others, to pursue the Lord with such resolution, with such commitment, with such devotion. He wanted to live his life on purpose. He wanted to think carefully about the kind of life he was living. He wanted to reflect regularly. And he wanted to strive intentionally. He wanted to make the most out of the life that God had given him on this earth. There's something very admirable about that and there's something incredibly biblical about that. This past week, excuse me, a couple weeks ago, um, my parents let me know that my, my grandparents had a request of me. Uh, my, my granddad this week um, turns 97 years old. Um, my nana and granddad, 96 and 97 years old, um, they, they asked my parents to pass on a message asking if I would officiate over their funerals. That's a strange message to get, by the way. And kind of over the past few weeks, it's, it's occurred to me that they're thinking more frequently about their, their coming death. I mean, at 96 and 97 years old, the reality is, listen, the honest truth, you just don't have much more time left. 
And the fact that they're thinking about their death has caused me to think about my own death. You say, well, that's a little bit morbid. Way to start off the new year. Well, at 19 years old, Jonathan Edwards was thinking frequently about his death. He realized something profoundly important, and that's this, that thinking about death actually helped you think about living. And throughout his 70 resolutions, there are a number of his resolutions that reflect this idea of considering death and therefore considering living. And let me give you a couple examples. In the seventh resolution, he says this, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it was the last hour of my life. Resolution 17, he says, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. And one of my favorites of all, Resolution 52, he says this, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved, he says, that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. He's 19 years old. Let me ask you this question. How are you going to live this year? I want you to think for a moment about the day that you will die because every one of us is going to face that day. And I hope and pray that right now your heart is being stirred already to consider that on that day, you're going to wish you had lived just the way you had hoped you would have. So that when you stand before your God and your King, your Creator, that you can say you lived well. And I want you to take that, and I want to break it down into just just a simple chunk. Listen, for this year, I don't know how old you're going to live to. I don't know how much time God's given you on this earth, and maybe it's not even this next year. But if we just looked at this year in view, and we thought to ourselves, listen, I need to be concerned about how I'm going to live this year. How are you going to choose to live? My hope and prayer is that you can resolve, like Jonathan Edwards, to live a particular way. Commit to live a certain kind of life. And I want to lead us through a... A passage here, a few passages that help us do just that. I hope you'll make these commitments with me this year. The first one is this. Commit to do this. Strengthen deep affections for God. Commit, resolve to strengthen deep affections for God. And I want to read to you 1 Peter 1, um, just verse 8 for the moment. Listen to what it says. Peter writes this. Though you have not seen him, listen to this, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Jonathan Edwards' most famous work, arguably, is his book entitled A Treatise on Religious Affections. I highly commend it to you. If you're interested in reading Old Dead Guys, you will love this book. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal work of theology. It is heart-stirring. It is life-changing. In his treatise on religious affections, Jonathan Edwards endeavored to identify what constitutes true and authentic spirituality. What does it mean to truly be saved? What does it mean to truly be a, a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be someone who is filled with spiritual life? 
maybe to put it in the form of a question, he was asking this, are there certain features or characteristics in human thought and behavior that serve as signs, evidence of the saving activity and presence of the Spirit of God in somebody's life? In his book, uh, A Treaty on Religious Affections, Edwards goes to this passage right here as perhaps the most pivotal, pivotal passage in his argument. He begins his book by going to this passage and saying, essentially, that here, what Peter writes is arguably the, the essence of true spirituality. So why, why does he believe that this passage speaks to the, the essence of true spirituality so clearly or, or pointedly? Well, because it describes here somebody who has been put through the ringer, somebody who has faced trials and difficulty and persecution even for the name of Jesus Christ. He looks at the preceding context and he says that this passage is so illuminating Peter, as if you're a part of Redemption Church, you know this, you've been walking through 1 Peter with us this year. Peter is describing believers here who have been cast out from their society, from their life of privilege, of honor. They're being looked down upon. They're suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. You know, they've committed their life to Jesus, and now there are consequences for that. You know, hardships have a unique capacity to highlight the difference between what is true and sincere in the heart of a person over and against what is false and hypocritical. Trial, hardship, actually tests our faith. Edwards said this, he said, true virtue never appears more lovely as when it is most oppressed. I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, isn't it so true? There's something about watching somebody suffer for the sake of Jesus, right? You you read stories about martyrs or or those uh, who are in the underground churches who are willingly suffering for the sake of Jesus but are holding fast to Jesus Christ in the midst of it. There's something that is so beautiful about that. There's something that just grabs your heart. There's something that draws you in. You see the virtue of that so powerfully in those moments. Trials and pains, they purify and they increase spirituality. They have a God-given refining power to them. When it comes to verse 8 in 1 Peter, Peter is describing what remains of Christian faith after it passes through the furnace of affliction. In verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The end product, in other words, of persecution and pain is a purified faith. All the trash has been taken out. All of the dross has been skimmed off of the top. It's as pure as it can possibly be. In in other words, for Edwards, he said that this is the picture of the very essence of authentic, of genuine faith. And 1 Peter 1.8 portrays for us then what Christian faith looks like in its purest form. 
When there's nothing else to hold on to, when everything in the world, everything that has, has given you joy and satisfaction is stripped away, what's left of it as you cling to Christ? Here, Edward says, is true spirituality. It's authentic religion. It's seen as clearly and as transparently this side of final glorification as is possible. And you know, the truth is, is I've, I've been doing ministry for long enough now to watch people walk through trials and tragedy in their lives. And there are typically two kinds of responses that you see. You see people who want to attack God in the midst of trials and in the midst of pain, who turn their back on God, who walk away from God, who believe it's not fair of God to allow them to endure these kind of trials, or, or listen, you see people really buckle down and lean into God and cling to God because they know that is all they have and it's all they need. You see, pain and tragedy have a way of exposing the inauthenticity of your faith or the authenticity and genuineness of your faith. How you respond in the midst of the trial is so revealing, and it's intended by God to be that way. He says, so what does true spirituality consist of? Well, he, he tells us here very clearly, he says it's this, love for Jesus and joy in Jesus. That is the essence, he says, of true spirituality. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. They hadn't seen Jesus with their physical eyes, but their spiritual vision was one of unashamed and extravagant affection for the Son of God. They had nothing any longer from a worldly perspective, but from a heavenly perspective, they had everything they could have ever hoped for. They were filled with this inner joy and a pleasure that no earthly trial could steal from them. It it was a joy and a love that came through faith, a belief, trust in the Son of God. They had put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had counted the costs. They had bowed the knee to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They did so knowing, listen, that it could cost them their jobs. It could cost them friendships. It could cost them family. It could cost them even their very life. And at the end of the day, they looked at the gospel of Jesus Christ and they knew one thing, the salvation of their souls and their eternal security and eternal hope and eternal joy was worth the cost of anything on this earth. And what they found was so amazing. It was a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. It was so profound, it was beyond words. It was filled with glory. This is a God joy. It is a heavenly joy. It is a supernatural joy. It is something that cannot be found in this world. So Edwards goes at this idea of a true religious affections. Maybe you're still asking the question, what exactly are affections? When we hear the word affections, a lot of us simply think of emotion or passion. We think of experiences. And Edwards actually said that that religious affections, in many ways, have very little to do with experience and emotions. He he wasn't dismissing them entirely. He, He knew that emotions were an important part of humanity and a reflection of who we are made in the image of God. 
He knew that our experiences were important, but he also knew one thing. He was watching in real time the Great Awakening unfold, a historic event where people were building their entire theological and religious foundation on simply emotional experiences. And he knew that that wasn't biblical. There was something off about that. Again, not that experiences and emotion are unimportant, but they just weren't the foundational part of what it means to have true religious affections. He said that true religious affections were found by the fervent exercises of the heart. You say, well, that's weird. What does that even mean? It simply means this. It means whatever your heart most longs for and pursues, whatever your heart runs to for satisfaction, whatever you find yourself clinging to for peace, for rest, for joy, those are the affections of your heart. The thing you think of most when you're longing most for stability, for happiness. He believed that we pursue what we love, and in turn, we love what we pursue. And he believed that those who have true religious affections, they cling to God most of all. In the midst of the hardest trials of life, when everything else fades, they turn to the one who holds them fast. And he said that there's this powerful dynamic at work. When we do that, some of us are like, well, well, is is Jesus really going to be enough for me? Will he truly give me the joy I long for? Will he truly give me the help I need? Edwards said that there is this kind of powerful principle and dynamic at work when we, when we turn to Jesus Christ, when we truly love him more than anything else. In fact, I'm going to put this quote on the screen behind me. It's, it's so good. It's so helpful. I trust this will bless your heart this morning. He says, the more a true saint loves God with a gracious love, the more he desires to love him. And the more uneasy is he at his want or his lack of love to him. The more he hates sin, the more he desires to hate it and laments that he has so much remaining love to it. The more he mourns for sin, the more he longs to mourn for sin. The more his heart is broken, the more he desires it should be broken. The more he thirsts and longs after God in holiness, the more he longs to long and breathe out his very own soul in longings after God. He says, the kindling and raising of gracious affections is like kindling a flame. The higher it is raised, the more ardent it is. And the more it burns, the more vehemently does it tend and seek to burn. He essentially says, like, the more you feed your affections for God, the more your affections for God begin to grow. Man, I want more of that this year. I don't know about you. I, I hope that's the desire of your heart. And as we think about the call to strengthen these deep affections for God, I want to encourage you first to just make some simple commitments this morning. I don't know what your year has looked like this past year. I don't know where you're at with the Lord today. But I believe there are important moments in our lives where we make these recommitments to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we've been far from the Lord. Maybe we have turned our back on Him in many ways. Maybe we have doubted Him and have not trusted Him in certain ways. 
what a great opportunity as we begin a new year on the calendar to make new commitments. And I just want to give you three simple commitments. And this is, this is all in many ways um, something you need to do in your own heart. There's not a lot of practical things to do right now just to simply contemplate this. And maybe in your heart say, yes, I need to make this commitment this morning. Here's the first one. Um, commit to strengthen your desire. So many of us have affections, things we run to and turn to for joy and happiness, for peace and rest, apart from God. And we need to see that whatever affections we're feeding are the thing we're going to most want to turn to in the midst of trial and difficulty, in the midst of our time of need. Many of us are are cluttered and distracted and divided in our desires, and our souls are being split between competing affections, and we simply need to say to the Lord today, God, I want my affections to be for you and you alone. I want you to hold my affect- the, hearts of my, the affections of my heart this morning. Lord, I want this to be a year where my desires are for you above all other things. We need to commit to trust Jesus. Secondly, we need to commit to strengthen our direction. Some of us find uh, uh, these competing desires difficult to navigate because we're walking typically in the wrong direction. We're, We're walking on a horizontal path instead of a vertical path with the Lord. We're so consumed with the things of this world, you know, we're so earthly minded, we're no heavenly good. And we need to have a more vertical focus on the Lord on a daily basis. We need to be more concerned about growing in godliness than growing in worldliness. And for some of us, here's what that means this morning. There's going to be a need right now to to repent of your sin, of the way you've been walking this past year. And God is so gracious. You know, repentance is all about the direction of your life. You know that? The term repent literally means to do a 180, to turn away from your sin and walk in a different direction toward God. You can think of it like this. Repentance is turning away from sin and selfishness towards God and grace. Let me say that again. Repentance is turning away from sin and selfishness towards God and grace. And God invites every one of us to do that, Um, even today. We need to commit to turn to Jesus. Let me give you one more. We need to commit to strengthen our devotion. We need to commit to treasure Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ above all else. We need to commit to be wholly devoted, completely surrendered to our God and our King in ever-increasing ways. And part of the way we need to do that is even, even this morning, listen, this is, this is, here's the practice of this, okay, right now. Some of you are, are sitting, you're hearing this like, this is all a good idea. How do I actually do this? Here's how you do it. You right now, take a moment before the Lord, and you pray. You just simply say, God, I, I'm, I'm recommitting myself to you this year. I'm committing to you in these areas, my desires, my devotion, and the direction of my life. God, I'm coming hard after you this year. And so here's what we're going to do. Let's just pause, all right? This is, church is a good place for prayer, Amen. All right, that's a good, good sign. Okay, just, just bow your head. Just take a moment right now. You go before the Lord. No looking at me. Just bow your head and let your heart be pulled into heaven. Just spend a moment in prayer.
Now, with your heads bowed, um, listen, church is not just an individual um, reality. It is a corporate reality. So with your head bowed, listen, you are, some of you are surrounded by people you know. Some of you are surrounded by people you don't. But if you're in Christ today, you are part of the family of God. And I just want you to take a moment to, in your heart, pray for the person or the people around you. Maybe there's family members. Maybe they're friends. Pray for their commitment to the Lord this year. Pray that God would strengthen their affections for God this year. Now, one last thing, heads bowed. If you are a part of Redemption Church, I want you to take a moment to pray for the Bridge on Taunton and their affections for the Lord this year. And if you're a part of the Bridge on Taunton, why don't you take a moment and pray for Redemption Church and, and our affections for the Lord this year. Let's pray for each other as church families and trust that God is going to work through that. Let's trust together. Amen. That's the closing amen. Let's trust together that God is going to hear those prayers, okay? We believe in the power of prayer. Amen, church? And let's trust that God is going to hear our prayers of commitment to him and be pleased to respond in power to grow our affections for him. Because this is where it begins. True affections then they can be cultivated and grown and stirred. And I want to draw your attention next to Psalm 1, and here's what we're going to do. You say, how do, I, how do I stir these affections? Well, you need to commit to this. You need to be resolved to spend meaningful time with God. Turn to Psalm 1 in your Bible. Our affections tend to follow what we give ourselves to. And there's perhaps no greater indicator of what we've given ourselves to than our time. And so as we look at Psalm 1, I'm just briefly, at a kind of high-level overview, I want you to have this question in your mind as we look at this, how do I spend my time? Every one of us has the same amount of it in a day, but what we choose to do with it will determine not only how our day goes, but how our life goes, and as Psalm 1 indicates, actually how our eternity will go. Listen to the words of the psalmist as he writes these words. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist, by the way, this psalm is strategically placed at the beginning. It, it actually becomes the key to understand how we're supposed to read the rest of the psalms, the, the heart attitude and the mindset that's supposed to capture us as we look through God's word. 
This is paradigmatic of how we're supposed to approach God and his word and of who we're supposed to be. And it describes at the beginning the man or the woman who is blessed. Now, the word blessed in Hebrew can literally be translated as happy. The person who has found joy and satisfaction at the soul level, outside of circumstances of life. This this person's life is filled with much joy, but I want you to notice that the joy comes from how this individual chooses to spend their time. Again, let's be clear about this. Our joy, listen, our joy at an earthly level and at a spiritual level is affected by who we spend our time with and what we spend our time doing. And I want you to first notice where this individual refuses to spend his time. The person who is truly happy and truly satisfied and truly filled with joy in the Lord, they don't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, they don't pursue sin and they don't hang out with sinners. Like They don't capture, that's not their lifestyle, that we, we immerse ourselves with sinners so that we can do what they do and become like them. Their goal is is not to be acclimated to the world around them. Their goal is not to be loved by the world because they look like the world. Here, this person refuses to waste time doing what is dishonoring to God. He refuses to do, listen, what would steal his heavenly joy and provide only a moment of earthly pleasure. Now, sometimes our pursuit of sin is very overt. It's very blatant. We, we walk so clearly in, in the, the ways of sinners, and it's so obvious. You know, our sin, it screams out at us. We know what we're doing. We know our rebellion. We know our wickedness. We feel the conviction. But sometimes, listen, sometimes, and this is the case for many Christians, sometimes our sin is actually very subtle. We don't actually see the sin at times in our lives. We become so comfortable with patterns of sin, we fail to recognize that they are sin. We begin to live subtly for the ways of the world, in the things of the world, in ways that are displeasing to God. In other words, our sin becomes less a sin of commission and more a sin of omission. Most of our subtle sin is a failure to do what we should be doing. Billy Graham once said this, it's difficult for me to understand how an intelligent person can spend all of time building for this world and have no time for the future world. And I think that's the subtlety of most of our sin. We we live for this world. We don't even see we're doing it. We're so caught up in in, in getting the things of this world and being loved and respected by this world and being embraced by this world, we fail to see that we're not living for the world that's yet to come. And R.C. Sproul, I love what he says. He reminds us, listen, of the importance of time. Just listen to this. He said this, right now counts forever. That's great advice. Right now counts forever. It matters right now. What you do with your time, what you're choosing to spend your time on, who you're choosing to spend your time with, it matters forever. 
I want you to notice, secondly, not only what this man refuses to spend his time doing, but what he loves to spend his time doing, what he chooses to spend his time doing. And it's so, so clear here. It says this, that in verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. I mean, his time is consumed with the word of God, with the law of God. Now, spending time in the word of God is synonymous scripturally with spending time with God himself. Why? Because God's word is the revelation of himself. And so the psalmist is is here not studying a textbook for intellectual information, but he's engaging in a relationship for heart transformation. And I want you to notice that the time he spends getting into God's word, or or better yet, the time he spends getting God's word into him. He meditates on the law of the Lord. And you're probably familiar with this passage. I know we've looked at it before, but it's so helpful to come back to this passage. This idea of meditating, the word in Hebrew literally means to chew. Um, It's like a cow chewing on cud, right? You ever watch that happen? I'm a fast eater. Hey, fast eaters in here? Okay, I can't stand watching people take their time with a meal. I'm like, just get it in, fast. Have you ever watch a cow eat food? It's ridiculous. It's like, swallow it already. Chewing it over and over and over and over and over. St. Augustine in the 4th century said these words. He said, the hearer of God's word ought to be like those animals that chew the cud. He ought not only to feed upon it, but to ruminate upon it. You see, that's the picture we're supposed to have here of somebody who, who doesn't just rush through the meal of God's word, but they slow down. They chew on it over and over. They take their time with it. They appreciate it like a fine meal. Another author said this, meditation is the chewing of the soul. You see, this is not the the superficial, check-the-box, legalistic kind of time in God's Word. This is deep, thoughtful, meaningful time in God's Word. You see, what what does meditation look like? J.I. Packer has this, this great quote that helps us understand what meditation looks like. He says this, meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. You know, you know what, you know what this, this is a lot like? This is like what we do in our small groups. At Redemption Church, we're, we're doing our, our, our Bible journaling. We call it soap journaling. The person who studies the scriptures, reads the scriptures, who observes the scripture, rightly understands what is being written to those whom it's written to, and then seeks to apply it regularly and faithfully to our own lives in the situations we find ourselves in, and then takes these words and prays them back to God. Asking God to do through his word and by the power of his spirit in us what only he can do. Apparently my son thinks that this is a funny sermon. (laughs) 
All right, buddy. Meditation, I want you to see this, is not optional in the Christian life. It's biblical. It's something that is commanded. It's something that we are supposed to do. You see, we need to look at Psalm 1 and realize, listen, that this is something we are supposed to be. That this person in Psalm 1 is supposed to be you and me. That's what it's supposed to be. It's held up for us as a model, as a goal. It really, listen, is a depiction of Jesus Christ himself. You say, what should this look like in my life? Well, there's a lot of ways that you can be meditating on the scripture, but here's what I know we need in principle. We need to both have quality time with the Lord, we need to commit to that, and we need quantity time with the Lord. I have a principle in my life, and that's that I strive to give my best time of the day to the Lord. Whenever you're freshest, whenever you are most able to kind of dig in and get the most from God, your freshest time of the day, I would encourage you, make that the time you give to the Lord. For me, it's, it's early in the morning. For some of you, it may be later on at night. But the picture that we have here is the picture of somebody who saturates their life with Scripture, that Scripture is, is inside of them and flowing out through them. And the, the picture is so powerful because what we see here as a result is a life that flourishes in tandem with the relationship that's being cultivated with God. Bearing much fruit, yielding fruit in its season. The leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. I mean, this is the goal. This is the key, listen, for having a thriving, healthy, spiritual life. It is time, meaningful time with God. Now, it's a new year, and for many people, it's resolution time. And cliches aside, it really does provide a good opportunity for us to stop and think and reflect and evaluate and plan I did this earlier this week, and uh, maybe it's helpful for you to have some kind of a paradigm to use. Here's the paradigm I used for my life this year. I'll put it up on the screen. Here's what I did to just kind of evaluate my life and make some plans for the year. The first thing I wanted to think through is this, three things. Um, what do I need to cut from my life? So you look at this psalm. Here he's very clear. He wants to avoid sin. He wants to avoid anything that's going to distract from him being with God and drawing near to God and walking in holiness. So here's what you can do. Just simply look at your life. And ask that question, Lord, what do I need to cut from my life that is um, sinful and is clearly against you and your word? Some of you have some very obvious things you can write down, right? You know sin that, that you've got to get rid of in your life right now. It's very obvious. But let's broaden the application a little bit. Maybe it's not something that is overtly sinful. Maybe it's something that's distracting you from spending time with the Lord this year. Maybe there's some things in your life that are cluttering your life, that are causing busyness in your life, or that are competing for the affections in your life that you simply need to cut out. Maybe you're consumed with your phone or social media or Netflix, or Disney Plus, you know, whatever, whatever news. You, you, can you see how the world is constantly putting stuff in front of you to keep you preoccupied with the world and distracted from God? Where, where are some things in your life that you simply need to cut out? Maybe there's some people in your life that are pulling you down bad paths, and you just need to say, that's, just not, that's not okay, it's not pleasing to God, and I need to cut this out of my life because I have to be committed to pursuing the Lord this year. Let me give you the second category that I use for my own life. Um, what do I need to continue? 
Maybe there's some things this past year that you did in your life that were incredibly fruitful, and I would encourage you, listen, now's not the time to let up and say, well, I did that, and it was helpful, and now I'm just going to stop. Maybe it's time to put the pedal down. Maybe it's, it's your journaling time with the Lord. Maybe it's, I know for me, one of the things was scripture memorization. A year ago, I committed to the Lord personally. I want to increase my scripture memorization. I really want to devote time to it. And, and the fruit of that in my life this year has been tremendous. And I'm looking back, I'm like, I don't want this to stop. I want to keep going with this. Maybe practically speaking, it's the time that you set aside in the morning that you want to protect, that you don't want anything to infringe upon. You just want to say, I want to keep doing what I'm doing here. I want to continue this in my life because I believe it's going to bear much fruit, spiritually speaking. Let me give you the, uh, the final one. What do I need to cultivate? What do I need to cult? What do I need to start doing that I haven't been doing so that I can bear more fruit in my life this year? Maybe it's, it's being more strategic in your meditation. For, for me, my, one of my convictions this year is I want to grow in my prayer life. Um, I want to grow in the amount of time I spend praying to the Lord and the kind of prayers I'm praying. I just I want to grow there. I want to grow. I want it to be sweeter and better and deeper. I, I, want, I want to be drawing near to God in prayer this year like I never have before. And I believe that's going to bear fruit in my life. Take some time. Evaluate, think, and plan for the future. See how God might bless that this year in your, your life. Let me give you our final point for the morning, and that's this. Stay consistently obedient to God. If you want to grow uh, this year, you need to commit to this. It's so important to commit to strengthening your affections for God. It is incredibly important um, to Give yourself to spending meaningful time with God, but I want you to see this. It is crucially important that if you're doing those things, you are also committed to this, to stay consistently obedient to God. And if you haven't turned there already, you can turn to the book of James. James chapter 1. And in James chapter 1, a familiar passage for many James write these words, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. I'm going to give you guys a second. There's still some of you turning. I love the sound of the pages of the Bible, by the way. Isn't that sweet? All right, it's right after Hebrews, and it's right before 1 Peter. So let's just look at the word together. I want eyes on the word. Look at verse 22. Let this resonate with your heart this year. Listen, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There is again this, this idea of blessing. You know, as, as parents, I think one of the most frustrating things, parents, you, you're, you're sticking with me on this, I know you are, is, is watching your kids 
disobey when you know they've heard you say exactly what they're supposed to do. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're like, hey, I've told you to do this, and then I'm watching you, and I'm watching you choose. You know what I said, and you're choosing not to obey. Like, that's incredibly frustrating, isn't it, as parents? You're like, we just had this, I've had this conversation 20 times, and you're not doing what you've been told to do. Now, here's the thing. As parents, listen, we get frustrated with this, but I wonder, just listen, I wonder how often we forget that that's often what we're like in our relationship with God. We love to get frustrated when our kids aren't doing it, but, but listen, I think that's a great, a great reminder there that so often we know what God is saying to us. And as his children, we are simply not doing what he's told us to do. And James comes alongside us and says, listen, this, this can't be in the Christian life. We need to bridge this gap. You see, affections for God are authentic when they lead to actions that please God. Jesus said it like this in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments. And you know, part of the battle in the Christian life is in many ways a battle for consistency. Right? We, we struggle so much in our spiritual lives with, with being up or down, the, the inconsistencies. And that's so often, if we're very honest with ourselves, is so discouraging it's derailing for many of us, and it's damaging to our progress in the Lord. You know, we, we treat our spiritual lives in many ways like yo-yo dieting or our commitment to the gym, right? We just show up every once in a while, and we wonder why we're not making progress, why everything seems like a massive setback. Progress in so many areas of life comes with consistency. And you see, simply hearing the Word of God is not enough according to God. Hearing the Word of God is not the same thing as obeying the Word of God. If all you do is, is hear it and you do nothing with it, you're actually kidding yourself, and the Bible says here that you're deceived. We must be gospel doers. Here's what I mean by that. We must be those who have embraced the gospel, and because of the gospel, we respond to the commands of God. We respond to his grace. We don't obey to earn his grace. We respond because we've received his grace. Amen, church? We're not trying to merit our salvation. We're not trying to earn God's favor. We want to be so enamored with what God has done for us that our hearts respond appropriately. We want to honor him. We want to obey him. We want to be pleasing in his sight. We want to bring glory and honor and fame to his name. And that means that, as James says, we need to look into the mirror of God's word, the royal law of God, and we need to see ourselves in that mirror, and we need to do what we see. And this is more, again, this is not just moral conformity, this is not just behavior modification. This is gospel transformation in the Christian life. So it's less about what would Jesus do, and more about what would I do if I were full of Jesus, C.S. Lewis called this idea, this kind of gospel-doing idea, a good pretending. It's the phrase he used, good pretending. And he differentiates it with bad pretending. You see, bad pretending is simply hypocrisy. It's trying to be somebody you're actually not. Good pretending is when we strive to be who we already are in Jesus Christ. Good pretending is grounding our gospel growth and our gospel 
obedience in our gospel identity. Good pretending isn't hypocrisy, it's actually spirit-led, a spirit-led attempt at consistency. It's kind of like what children do when they pretend to be grown-ups so that they grow up. Spiritual children, listen, we, we actually grow up by being who we're supposed to be. We become practically, in other words, who we are already positionally because of the gospel. You see, the gospel reminds us that our identity is found in Christ. This requires that we constantly remember who we are because we struggle so often with our identity. We try to place our identity in other things, in our own accomplishments and our own possessions, our accolades. And so I want you to do something with me as we kind of conclude our time. I want you to imagine a version of yourself. If you're in Christ this morning, if you have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, if he is your Lord and he is your Savior today, I want you just to, for a moment, imagine a version of yourself. Imagine you've experienced a deep gospel renewal in your life. You've recommitted yourself. You have fully surrendered. You've, you've shed yourself of some sin that has been damaging you and your relationship with God. And there's this sense of freedom and hope and joy that's, that's now been renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've stopped gazing at the world around you and you've begun to fix your eyes on the things that are above where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. You are beholding his glory like you never have before. And as a result, you're treasuring him like never before. Your identity is found in Christ. It's no longer found in what you have. It's no longer found in what people think of you. It's no longer found in what you can accomplish. You are anchored in gospel truth. You are a blood-bought child of God. You are forgiven and set free from the power of sin. You are loved by the Father. You are purchased by the Son. And you are sealed by the Spirit of God. You have a guaranteed hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it is kept in heaven for you. You are overwhelmed by and overflowing with Christ's love. Now listen now. Take that version of yourself and inject him or her into the situations of your life. What would that gospel you do? What would that gospel you do with with your eyes, with what you chose to view, with what you chose to willingly subject your mind to and your ears to and participate in with your hands and your feet? What about your relationships? How would that gospel you respond in your home to your spouse, to your kids, to your loved ones? How would that gospel you respond in your your neighborhood, in conversations with those who live side by side with you, in the workplace? How would that gospel you live in light of the Great Commission in the world that God has placed you in? And when you have the answer... I want you to ask for God's help and then simply do this. Go and do it. Do it. Look at yourself in the mirror of the gospel, the liberating law of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. See who you are in light of the good news. Now don't walk away and forget it. 
walk away and do exactly what you saw. And do it consistently. You know, Jonathan Edwards accomplished much in his life. He was arguably the most prolific theologian um, ever produced by North America, and he's one of the greatest theologians, arguably, of all time. But what you may not know is that his life was cut drastically short, and tragically so. He had just been appointed the president of Princeton College. His family had not even moved into town. He got a smallpox inoculation, and he died um, because of complications and infection. He was 55 years old. And while his life was cut short, I can promise you this, it was a life well lived. Not one of us knows exactly how much time that God has given us on this earth. We're not ultimately responsible for that. But every one of us is responsible for how we choose to live this life that God has given us. Edwards knew this and embraced this at the age of 19. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. And regardless of how you've lived up till now, by God's grace, listen, he calls us to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Listen, loved ones, listen, today is a new day. This is a new year. Amen. And this year ahead, listen, by God's grace and God's power can actually be the best spiritual year of your life. More freedom for sin, from sin, more joy in the Lord, more fruit for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. That can be this year. But it's not going to be done without some effort and some resolve. That's what I'm aiming for this year. And I pray that's what you're aiming for as well. So let me invite you to make these commitments with me. Resolve to strengthen deep affections for God. Resolve in your heart today to spend meaningful time with God and resolve to stay consistently obedient to God. And may God receive all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise in and through us. Amen, church? Let's pray that God makes that so in us. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would take us, uh, your people, those whom you have purchased with the blood of your own son, and God, you would be pleased in this moment to take us, Lord, bowed and surrendered, that you would fill us with your Spirit's power, Lord, that you would encourage us with great hope for this year, that you would help us, Lord, as we look to this year. God, may we long to live a life that is pleasing to you, that brings glory and honor to the name of Jesus. Father, take us now. And Father, we pray that you would put Christ before us and the world behind us. Lord, deepen our longings, deepen our affection. God, draw near to us as we draw near to you. And help us, Lord, to faithfully follow you to be obedient and pleasing in your sight. We pray this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.